0: Now, I'm no expert, but doesn't somebody usually get the belt after delivering a knockout blow? You're listening to the Selfie is Godcast with Zach Meisel and TJ Zupi. Fly ball, deep right field, back Subscribe to Selby is Godcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Unbelievable! Sandy Alomar famously once hit a home run against the New York Yankees that kept Cleveland alive in that series. And wouldn't you know it, how absolutely fitting is it that Oscar Gonzalez wearing Sandy Alomar's belt? delivers the knockout blow that enables Cleveland to advance to face the Yankees. How poetic is that? Dude, so much, so much just comes full circle in this
1: game. You know, Paul Hoynes once wore two belts at the same time. <laughs> yes. So if if Sandy didn't want to lend his, there was someone in the building with experience in carrying an extra. Not needed. Well, where do we start?
0: I don't know. As I was on the way back from the game last night or yesterday after, well, I guess it was pretty close to night by the time that game ended. I was just trying to jot down quickly in my iPhone little snippets from the game that I didn't want to forget because a game like that, inevitably, there are 15 innings You are going to forget that Tristan McKenzie started that game. That's going to feel like (laughs) it was three days ago. You're going to forget that he dominated. You might forget every single individual defensive play that if it doesn't take place in the exact manner that it does, does Cleveland win the game? We don't know. We don't see into that universe, but I'm sure Cleveland Guardian fans don't want to be waking up today living in that universe. They want to be in the universe where their Guardians swept the Tampa Bay Rays and are now on their way to face the New York Yankees in the division series. We said that they were sort of playing with house money, but the team didn't feel like that. There was still some element of they really could benefit from winning this series to prove that this season was no fluke, that it is absolutely hands-down a success and no one could claim different. And they went out there and swept the Rays, took care of any any. Disappointment, I think, that could be felt just based on not being able to win a playoff game or not being able to win a playoff series. The year is 2034.
1: We are recording episode number... I don't know. 3,000 of the Selby's Godcast on Podbean Plus And all... 300,000 of our subscribers are tuning in and they're excited because today is one of those episodes where we go back and reminisce about an old game and we go through it start to finish. And what do you know? Today we're going to do October 8th, 2022. Remember that 15-inning scoreless marathon that ended after the sixth rendition of SpongeBob SquarePants theme song? I mean, that's, what a day. I mean, it's 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 crazy how, baseball is like the only sport, maybe football to an extent, but I think when you get like a 6-3 game in football, or like the other night, Broncos, Colts, nobody ever wants to think about that game again. Baseball's the only sport, I think, uh, no, but nothing happens in soccer. Baseball's the only sport where on the scoreboard, it looks like absolutely nothing has happened for five hours. And yet, everybody who left that ballpark yesterday is thinking, "I'm gonna remember so many moments, like you said, of this game. So many elements for the rest of my life. And yeah, it's just so cool. It's the things that postseason baseball sort of like takes the best parts of the sport and showcases them. And so, you know, a 15 nothing scoreless game in early May." between the guardians and rays we'd be sitting there pulling our hair out and just praying that the thing would end and people would leave maybe after the 11th inning because they want to get home and it'd be hard to blame them you know we were there don't they cut off concessions don't they stop beer sales yeah in like the 7th inning what the yeah. hell were people doing How, what 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 reserves were they tapping into to get the energy and the enthusiasm <laughs> eight innings later
0: well i had seen quite a few fans using their towels as a, a means to get out their frustration after another double play or another strikeout in the 11th 12th inning just banging the seats just being so frustrated and it it did feel like that the i almost felt like the fan base yesterday the crowd game 1 they were into it from the first pitch and they were almost trying to bring the energy out of the players. In game two, it was like everyone was this is just my interpretation. Maybe people feel differently. But it was like everyone was waiting to party. And they were just just give us, give us that that small opening that we can just lose our minds. And it was like every time you would just get so close. You're you're just there. You're on the brink of losing it. And then Tampa Bay turns a double play. You're, you're late in the game, Look, it looks like no one can see the ball because that glare and the shadows were reminiscent of that 97 game against the Orioles where there were a ton of strikeouts in that game. Everyone was just, oh, so much anticipation. They couldn't wait. And to their credit, I would say 90 to 95% of the people that I saw stuck around. And the people that left their seats, I think all they did was just go to a standing room section. I'm not sure many people actually left the ballpark. And that's a testament to a lot of people that wanted to be down there for that party.
1: It's pretty special. I mean, we've said it like that ballpark in October. And look, I know game one wasn't a sellout. I know both of those games were played around brunch time. But that atmosphere is just so special. And to think you're going to get at least one more next Saturday... Which, I would think, the atmosphere would be electric again. So it's 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 pretty cool. I, I think the players feed off of it, um, and I don't know where do we go like like the the pitching. <laughs> I mean, I, I I know both sides did it, and we could talk about the irony with of Corey Kluber being on the mound in that moment, but just unbelievable and I you know like there was certain I, I hate comparing everything about a playoff run to playoff runs we've already seen right I don't want to say that this is 2016 the players the, co- the coaches the front office people like they don't want comparisons to 2016 because it's different there's one player from that team but guys are wearing diapers during that run <laughs> yeah I mean truly like they were in high school uh, but, I mean, I was having flashbacks to Andrew Miller watching Sam Hentges. If I could take a little victory lap, I was making some comparisons there like a year ago, right? Two years ago, maybe. Um, that was such a gutsy effort by, by Hentges and just really a perfect culmination of everything he's done to get to this point. It's been a rocky journey. Um, But then I was having flashbacks You know when Eli Morgan comes in I'm thinking like this feels like Josh Tomlin In in game two in 2017 You know you're Had the same thought You've got a pitcher who's prone to giving up some home runs But You know there's something about him That just He he seems like he wanted that moment Um, And you see the energy then When Straw makes that catch And Morgan turns around and salutes him With some four letter words but it just it's maybe it's Is got friend that feel. A four-letter because, letter word. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's got that feel because we've seen this recipe before, where it's just one pitcher after another comes in and shoves, and you're just buying time for your offense to deliver a key hit. That's that's literally what they did once they ran out of healthy pitchers in 2016, and. I know it's been two games, but that's kind of how they've played for a while now, and it's worked. They're 26-6 and in their last 32 games. That's insane.
0: Yeah, unbelievable. And It's not a stretch to say the Guardians have been a better second-half team than the team they're going to play in the New York Yankees, which, as we know, will have no bearing on how this five-game series is going to play out, but you harped on it last week. I don't think this is a David and Goliath scenario here other than the fact that it's the Yankees in name and the Guardians, which people are still learning their name. Even people at ESPN who make the promos for the next day's game still learning the name. I don't think this is a a case where Cleveland's going to be outmatched. But before we get to that series, we do have to look back because there is just so much that is worth mentioning. And as far as the four-letter words go, to maintain a SpongeBob sort of theme here. Those are called sentence enhancers, I believe, as Patrick once famously said. And there were many of them hurled in the direction of the field from the players at the players at the home plate umpire. I mean, everyone, the emotions were bubbling pretty high and and it it did have that playoff atmosphere, especially as the game went on And, and both teams were just striking out at a ferocious pace. Let's, let's do the game. Let's do the imagine telling yourself game. Imagine telling yourself that the Guardians are going to strike out 19 times in a game. Andre Semenes is going to have five of those strikeouts himself. And they're still going to find a way to win that game. And I think, oh, I can't remember what player said it. It was probably Austin Hedges because he had all the quotes yesterday. And he, the fact that he wasn't wearing a shirt, he had enough enough quotes to make up for that. Um <laughs> D- despite the fact that they didn't have the offense, they played so splendidly in other every other facet of the game that it enabled them to be in a position to win it. The defense was sparkling. Miles Straunt demonstrating why you leave that guy in center field. Now, he's running a, a WRC Plus that's in the 40s. Okay, we can have that conversation. But that dude plays because of the difference that he makes in center field. And it wasn't even like it was highlight-level plays. He is so good at being in a position, and of course the coaches help him in that regard too, putting him where he needs to be to give him the best jump so that when he's tracking that ball down in center field, he almost surprised himself on that Eli Morgan one. It looked like he was ready to go into a slide, but his read was so good and his speed was so quick he was in a position to make that catch before he even needed to go into a slide. When the ball is in the, the air to center field, that is almost assuredly going to be in his glove by the time that ball lands.
1: From your vantage point where you were sitting, did you think that was a base hit? Cuz for me, absolutely. It looked like it was in the gap and I, my my first instinct was, is that going to be a single or is that going to be a double? You know, it's one thing to give up one run, but are you are you on the verge of having second runner in scoring position? because I thought that's the thing that makes Straw so impressive is maybe he gets he's a little underrated defensively just from the eye test because some of the balls that every other center fielder would have to dive, lunge, slide to catch, he's just makes them on the run. So you think, oh, that's yeah, it's a solid play. When in reality, it's like he had no business getting to that.
0: I I think there were like. Three of those types of, of balls yesterday. Where maybe 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 an average center fielder still gets there, but it's close. He There's there's no sweat whatsoever. And to your point about the Mejia one, yeah, that looked like that was going to be in the gap. It definitely looked like it was going to find grass. And there, there comes that dude in center field. The Rays, someone has to uh, think about the game plan of if we're going to strike out, we're going to hit the ball. Or if we're not going to strike out, we're going to hit the ball to center field. Don't do that. There was a time where all you needed in that game was Miles Straw in center field, Tristan McKenzie on the mound, and Austin Hedges catching. And let's give some credit to Tristan McKenzie, who has been brilliant down the stretch. I mean, more than that, the entire season for him has been really good, but it has just come into his own. And you texted me at the first pitch that it was 90 miles per hour. I think some of that's probably just Wanna make sure my first pitch is in there. And I want to control that. There's probably some nerves at play. I also think the fact that you were talking about a a smaller frame and that kind of weather probably took him a little bit extra to, to get loosened up. But he he's got a loosened Florida up kid. quick. Yeah, that's my point. <laughs> like it's he's not used to it and that body's probably not well equipped to handle 30 degree temperatures all the time. So if it's in the forties and fifties, it's not much better. But he, how quick did that dude get loosened up? And how about some of the absurd swings and look and, and balls in the dirt and just, it looked like Tampa Bay didn't have a prayer against him. That That is, when you're thinking about what an ace looks like in the playoffs, we saw that with Shane Bieber, and then we saw it with Tristan McKenzie. I, kind of, I liked the
1: game plan, too. First inning, he threw 11 pitches. They were all fastballs. You had three flyouts to center field. So I think that, you said it, it allowed him to just get comfortable Figure out, like, get a feel for what you have and not show the nasty stuff to the top of their order. Brilliant. And, you know, that's why he had... Then when he did face those guys again, fourth inning, he was able to unleash some of that. And what do you know? He had a no-hitter through four. So, yeah, I'm sure he probably learned a little bit from what Bieber did. You know, it's another guy unheralded, and topless a lot, but like Austin Hedges deserves a lot of credit for the game calling, guiding these pitchers through these these lineups. Look, I get it. You want to pinch hit for him, any opportunity you can, and and they didn't pull the trigger on that a couple times. When I mean, I said it aloud in the press box, "This is curious. Why are you carrying Bo Naylor if you're not going to deploy a pinch hitter in this situation?" But I can understand the conversations happening in that dugout where they're hesitant to pull hedges because the pitchers are just in such a groove. I get that. Now, you have to score runs to win the game. So, you know, they finally did pinch hit for hedges in game two. Strangely, the only move they made in 15 innings, kind of very odd. But, yeah, I mean, he's, he's done a fantastic job. I mean, it's... The way Bieber and Mackenzie looked, I mean, that's that you have to have that. That that is how this team can win games. And I don't know. They've got. I mean, it's it's. I think because it's. We said this the other day. Because Bieber's not throwing ninety five. Because he's not. You know, he's different. He's not throwing the curveball as much as he used to. And and so that used to bounce in the dirt and get ugly swings and misses. And then he'd throw 95 and blow past some guys and he's very different. And McKenzie, it's it's that curveball and it's, you know, he's throwing 91, 92 and guys are missing it. It's just like you watch this and you're thinking you know, because the strikeout rates aren't sexy but I think these two starts just reinforced the fact that you have those anchors in that rotation, those top line guys who can go up against anyone else's top line guys and give you a chance to win. I think that's that's pretty comforting for the team.
0: I think there's something to the theory that they, if they wanted to get strikeouts, they could go after more strikeouts, and I think they, these past two games will demonstrate they can get swing and miss when they want some. I, you can't tell me that there wasn't some team-wide game plan to, to be okay with more contact. And hell, if your defense is going to look like that behind you, then you're not going to shy away from that. But over the long course of a season, you're thinking, how do we keep our pitchers healthy? How do we keep them pitching deep into games? And how do we get them to last near 200 innings in a season? Is it chasing strikeouts? Is it forcing them to live near their max velocity-wise all at all times? Or are we going to be okay with some early contact and surviving deep into games? I think there is some degree of that happening. I don't think it explains away all of why their strikeout rates are what they are this year. But I do think there was just an element of that. And then once they got to the postseason, this team just, when they get to these short series, doesn't it just look like they know how to arm their guys to go attack these the, these, the opposition? And, and not that it, it, you still have to execute the pitch. So just because you have a good game plan doesn't mean the pitch gets executed. We've seen that thousands of times. But they just seemingly arm their guys with the right amount of uh, of data before these games. The catchers are so well-prepared, as you laid out with Austin Hedges, and they just let him get after it. Now, I know. It's Tampa Bay. It's not the best offense in the league here. That we, we talked about it when this series began, that it might be a great matchup because Tampa Bay is similar to Cleveland and that they're going to rely on their pitching. There's not probably going to be a lot of high-scoring games here, not a team that relies on the home run. Makes it a little bit interesting to see what's going to happen in this Yankees series. It's a far different lineup that they're going to be facing, even in terms of how they want to score runs. But to me, playoffs, it doesn't matter who you're facing. That team is good enough to make the postseason, and they can be dangerous. And to, to, to see the pitchers do the job they did in this series, the only run that they gave up was on a home run to a ninth-hitting center fielder that probably eight times out of ten isn't a home run. Like That, that, that just shows you how special they were in this series.
1: I don't care if you give up a 0.38 ERA in two games against T-ballers. I mean, that's it, impressive. So, yeah, I, I think I, Carl Willis deserves a lot of credit here. I, no one ever seems to mention him. Uh, but he his preparation, it's a tough thing to talk about because it's impossible to quantify. And I'm not in their pitchers meetings, but... You hear everybody give him credit. Um, you know, Especially in talking about Bieber and, and the way Carl Willis knows how to set him up for success because it's very different than how they set him up for success two years ago. So Yeah, he deserves some credit. I mean, obviously just the pitching team in general. Joe Torres is new. He replaced Ruben Niebel. And remember in the first half, the starting pitching, the pitching staff in general was not As sound as it normally is. And a lot of people were saying, oh, it's the Ruben Yable effect. He's gone and the whole pitching factory is collapsing. Well, haven't heard that in a few months. Pitching staff's been really, really good um, during this run. And it's it's what's going to carry them. And I, I said it before, it's like we spend so much time talking about the offense. And it's justified because they've had breakout performances. And it's such an interesting style of play. But the pitching staff is what has carried them. Because even even over the last month, I was thinking, maybe like a week or so ago, I was thinking, you know, the offense seems like it's been just a well-oiled machine since September started after that Seattle-Baltimore fiasco for a week where they didn't score a run. And I went and I looked at this point, and I'm like, I wonder what their team WRC Plus is since that scoreless streak ended. It was like 107 so it's like it's they've been an above-average offense. It's pretty good. I think it ranked, like, ninth in baseball or something. But it's not like this has been some juggernaut who's just scoring six, seven runs a night. No. The pitching staff has carried them, and it's made it so that just go score three, go score four, we got you. And that is a formula that can work. Now, you're going to have to hit, <laughs> right? It's amazing that they scored three runs and they won two games. And of course, they swept him him with three runs. And all three runs came on two home runs, which is not how they play. So, can you get Quan going? Can you get Jimenez going? Can you get Rosario going? Can you get them doing what they do? Hit singles and doubles into the gap, run first to third, and keep the line moving. I don't know if that gets easier against the Yankees. Garrett Cole struck out 257 batters this year. The one thing he's susceptible to is the home run ball. This is kind of a weird matchup in that respect. But if they can just get a couple of those guys going, it makes things a lot easier. If the offense resembles what it resembled over the
0: weekend, I don't know. I don't know if, if going to Yankee Stadium helps or hurts a young team. The fact that this isn't the first playoff series, they've already experienced some degree of the playoffs, and they're advancing, and they kind of got that, you know, whatever nervousness is in the system, it's going to be there. It's always there in the postseason. But kind of shake some of that loose, and you survive, you sweep. And now you go on the road so you can maybe get into some of that bunker mentality. And I, I think that's the case anyways for just the way that this team has come up together and they're they're being so young. But maybe it benefits them, or maybe it hurts them. I, the thing is, we the theme all year about this team is we just don't know. We don't know how they'll react, and they've reacted so positively in pretty much every test that they've faced. Even if the test is you haven't had a good couple of weeks, they respond, and they finish the season as strong as anybody, even in individual elements of this game. And by the way, if you're new here to the show, I know we're getting some new listeners here. I'm TJ. That's Zach. We do this every week. The free version <laughs> hey, app podcast, in, Spotify. Nice. If you've made it this far, you might actually enjoy the show and perhaps would want some more of it so that's where you can find us uh, we've been experimenting with doing some stuff on youtube so if you have a youtube account go follow us at selby is godcast get those numbers up and of course if you want more of this show and if you want in the discord which was absolutely on fire for the past several days come be a patreon supporter patreon.com slash selby is godcast where we do additional episodes we did a recap a short one after game one if they had lost game two, we would have come back and done a short one and then wrapped it all up in our, our longer episode here. We're always having all sorts of, of baseball discussions, Guardians discussions, so if you like that, click subscribe, click like, whatever, wherever you're taking this thing in. And if you want more of it, patreon.com slash godcast. So I, I mentioned, there are even smaller parts of the game where I'm impressed by the moment not being too big. One that comes to mind, which is easy to forget, and it's easy to overlook because in the box score it just shows up as a double play but Andre is not panicking when the runner stops at second base we we have seen that before where the second baseman doesn't quite know what to do should they chase down that runner that's coming towards them should they panic and just flip the ball to second base and ensure you get one out i think you could look past that play and completely forget it in a game like yesterday but to me it stood out that this team is in such good position and Jimenez, in this situation, is such a smart ball player, great baseball IQ, that he see he forces the runner to stop, then he flips the ball to first base after the runner has stopped all momentum. And that gives them a chance to go get that double play. And then let's not lose sight of the fact that that is an extremely tough throw for the first baseman to make. Josh Naylor turns, fires a strike, and then you get Rosario on the other end. You've got to clean, catch it cleanly. You've got to tag the guy. That's a diffi- more difficult play than I think you even think about it being but in that moment to not have any panic to just go take care of that in the way that game was going any additional base runner or any out that you didn't get was going to be massive and I thought that just spoke volumes to where this team is at baseball IQ wise and also just not letting the moment be too big for them
1: I think the runner was surprised Jimenez threw it too because then he didn't he kind of froze didn't keep going that was a bizarre play you know, Naylor, I know when they had the bases loaded and Jose struck out, and then Naylor bounced into the double play, and he was pretty frustrated. I mean, his helmet had come off. His hands are above his head. He's just can't believe they didn't capitalize on that opportunity that was gifted to them by some dude with numb fingers and then another guy who comes in and immediately uh, hits Gonzalez, I think, with a pitch. Um or Rosario, Rosario. Rosario, and, yeah. And so you could see, I mean, that was... Boy, if, if they end up losing that game, that's what you're going to point to, the missed opportunity. What a job by him defensively. And the fact that what he went through, you know, the significant leg injury, he's spending, like a year ago at this time, he's in bed recovering, his parents are crumpling up socks, throwing it to him, and he's just practicing hand-eye coordination in bed and was not sure what this was going to look like and wasn't on the opening day roster. They wanted him to knock off a little bit of rust in A, and then to see him just, and I know it's the job of a first baseman, it's what you're supposed to do, but to sacrifice his body and contorting all these weird positions to scoop Jose Ramirez's throw and stretch as far as he can on that leg. I'll tell you what, not no offense to Owen Miller. If he's playing first base, a couple of those throws are winding up in the camera bay. And we're sitting here previewing game three. So just an incredible job by him because say what you want offensively. He's really struggled against lefties. You know, he had some pretty bad at-bats. In that series where they kept bringing in lefties. He's waving at off-speed pitches way out of the zone. Not showing the patience that he he can show sometimes. But to deliver defensively. To just do something to provide value. I think that's really impressive.
0: Which leads into that play that Ramirez made down the line. Uh, Tito said it might have been year saving. I, I don't think it's a, a stretch to say that. Because we don't know what happens in a potential Game 3 and the offense didn't show up until Oscar Gonzalez late in the game, so you're probably set up for a game three. Jose doesn't make that play. Now, that happened right in front of me. And that ball down the line, it happened so quick that in my brain I'm trying to process, is that really fair? It, it, it was close. Mm-hmm. You didn't know. And so for him to be able, to, with a runner at third base and runner at first as well, right? I think there's runners at the corners at this point. Mm-hmm. For him to catch that on that short hop, Get enough momentum as he's coming towards us, towards the stands, and to get enough on, to, to not only get enough on the throw, but to make an accurate throw, close enough where Naylor can reach like you dropped your french fry on the ground underneath the table and you're like stretching <laughs> your toe as far as you can to see if you can get that back towards you so you can you know, throw that in the garbage can, not eat it. It's been more than five seconds. That play was as good a third, given the context. A good good of a play is you'll see a third baseman ever make
1: Gio or Shella vibes,
0: yeah absolutely.
1: I thought it was cool too. Ahmed Rosario just jumping on Ramirez's back. he did that a couple times. Ramirez made a couple nice plays in the extra innings I mean it was yeah, it was you start to lose track of how many key plays, how many plays that because no one really had momentum, right I kept thinking. I mean, I'm sitting there internally panicking about travel plans that no one cares about but me. And I'm thinking every top half of the inning, I'm like, all right. Like if Tampa gets a runner on, it's like in my head, I'm doing statistical probabilities like, all right, Tampa's probably got like a 60% chance to win this now. And every time there was a scoreless top half of the inning, I'm like, okay, this could be it. Like, Cleveland's got it. But but there was really no momentum. You know what I mean? It's like, there were plays that thwarted momentum. But no one ever had, aside from the sixth inning, when they loaded the bases with nobody out, there wasn't, like, a great scoring chance. You know, even when Tampa, when Jose made that play, it's, yeah, you have runners on the corners, but there's two outs. Like, there was no great scoring chance. So, that's why it was such a weird game. I mean, it took Tampa how many innings to even get a runner to third? Twelve? Like... There was just, it was, I mean, it was not great hitting, and you said the shadows did not help, but, I mean, the the pitching was just unbelievable. It was so impressive, and the, the fact that it was so many different pitchers doing it was really impressive, too. You know, it wasn't just, I thought Rasmussen would have gone longer, and he would have just been in the game for a while, and that they'd save Kluber for game three and then from Cleveland's standpoint it's like you're you're running out of pitchers you know McCarty and Plesak were warming up at one point I don't know that you want to see those two guys so <laughs> I was doing the math inches. I'm like
0: you could probably get four or five out of Plesak and then uh maybe uh McCarty can give you three four so like you're gonna cover another eight innings I don't know if they get to how the going go. they're screwed yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's really what was crossing my mind as as that was playing out. And so thankfully you, you had those defensive plays that kept them in the game and the pitching kept striking people out around the, the hedges, caught stealing, which was phenomenal. The fact that they almost picked Harold Ramirez off first base and maybe depending on your replay, you thought that they did and they didn't have enough evidence to mm-hmm. overturn it. You know, just the fact that that Naylor held the bag at first base and you've got the first base coach of the Rays just going bananas, losing his mind because he just was hoping, he was wishing that he came off the bag, and yet he didn't. Uh, And of course, we talked about the straw line-out and there are just many other, not him lining out, but catching the the line-out from Mejia. There are so many individual things in a game like this that are just so worth revisiting. And yet, the thing that, that I could not get out of my brain Towards the end of it, they had at one point shown the some of the scouts that were in town, and they were up in the the mm-hmm. uh, the section, the su- the suite section. They're up there with their families. They're getting to celebrate being part of this, which they should. You know, any any time a team has a deep postseason run, every part of the organization gets to celebrate it. But man, think of all of the energy and effort, not just from scouts, but the the team that handles the draft, the team that handles the the player development at every level. And the fact that you are now relying on, you mentioned Eli Morgan, semi-failed starter thrust into a bullpen role, now playing a key role for you in the postseason. Sam Henches going big boy relief appearance. We make fun of relief wins. That dude earned a relief <laughs> win if I've ever seen it. This was no congrats on the win, Jeff Manship, after they, they won on the the Tyler Naquin inside the park home run. Sam Hentges earned that massive high five that he got coming off of the mound. I'll tell you what, all and, you, and, and then that's all you writers over the age of
1: 70 who love mentioning reliever wins in your articles. Go ahead. You can write Sam Hentges is one <laughs> and zero with a zero ERA.
0: He earned that thing. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, even my kids were excited about it upstairs. Um. <laughs> So, so the thing that comes to mind is how many people played a hand in, in a team like this, where you have the the amount of 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 homegrown talent, part of your organization. So much energy had to take place for them to be able to get to that point. It was truly incredible. It's such a good point
1: because you think about think about Hunches. So in twenty nineteen. You want to talk about win-loss record, I think he was like 2-13 and 13 at AA. The ERA wasn't good either. Um, and Tim Belcher was watching him quite a bit that season. I think, I don't remember what his role was. I think he's a special advisor and you know, obviously helps on the pitching side. Former long-time Major League starting pitcher. But he told people in the organization, like, look, the numbers say what they say. But I'm telling you, this was... This guy took massive steps forward this year. 2020, he's blowing away everybody at the alternate site, working with different people over there, um, you know, just coaches and, and coordinators in the organization. And then 2021, I mean, talk about a work in progress. And he's worked with Ruben Niebla and Carl Willis and Brian Sweeney. And then this year, I mean, it's just, you're right, there's a lot of different hands um, just playing a role in this and you can you can go back to the drafting and the scouting of it too. And you're right. Like think about a guy like Stephen Kwan. You know, he was at Oregon State. They've got their Pacific Northwest scout who might have listened to an episode of this podcast once in a while, but but you think about you know, when you when you are a scout and you're making a push and you're you're stating your case why a certain guy should be signed. And then you're tied to that guy forever, right? And you're watching them throughout the minor leagues, even though that's not your jurisdiction anymore. And you're you're staying tuned to all their starts or all their at bats and hoping that they perform well. And and for Quan, I mean, he was another guy. He had 2020 wiped out last year. He had some injuries, limited track record, but another guy who I mean, at the start of of the season, he he goes in the cage. And he's working with Grant Fink and he's working with Alex Eckelman. And these are guys in the organization who the casual fan has no idea who they are, but they're just, it shows you how many different people play a role in getting a player to develop into what they are now. And who would have thought that Quan would be your, you know, you're going to be in the playoffs and it's not even, you're never going to even think twice about who you're penciling into that leadoff spot in the lineup. So, yeah, when it works like this, it's pretty cool. And I think that the thing that I said when we made our season predictions, which looked really silly in the end, I, the one thing I cautioned was, with a team this young, you don't know what you don't know. Because you didn't know, you know, I said it, like, people who thought, oh, I think they're going to win 92 games. Yeah, but you, not this way. Right. Like, you didn't know Oscar Gonzalez was going to be part of this because the organization didn't know Oscar Gonzalez was going to be part of this. You didn't know Stephen Kwan was going to play the role he played because Stephen Kwan didn't know Stephen Kwan was going to play this sort of role. Um, It's been such a rare occasion of just watching so many young players develop on the fly and do it so well that it leads to winning. You don't see this. I mean, how many people have you heard say, well, when you have 17 players make their major league debut in a season that usually translates to 103 losses. It's true. <laughs> look at Cincinnati. Look at Oakland. But here, it's been different, and it's because of all those different people and the
0: roles that they've played. Yeah, I, I thought this back in 2016 when Lonnie Chisenhall hit a three-run home run and they go on. They eventually go on to, to beat the Red Sox in that round, and I thought, to that point, Lonnie Chisenhall, first-round pick, you would say, has not lived up to expectations. And yet, when you're picturing someday, or picturing in the past, and you're trying to look ahead, you're thinking, this guy is going to hit a big playoff home run for us. Doesn't that on some level just feel like, that's a victory? Maybe the career doesn't go the way that you want. Mm-hmm. But this guy is playing a role for our organization. This is me thinking as you know someone that's in charge of scouting and and, and drafting this guy that feels like a big success to even think they're going to be in the major leagues and then playing a vital role in a playoff win for you. And so that's what went through my mind. So many of the, when when you have a team like this where they all come through the system and maybe a few of them were, were traded for it, but you still plant them in your system and they come up and you, even Andres Jimenez, you still have to apply some of your own development to him after he came over and he was already in the big leagues for the Mets. But you have to send him down to AAA, you have him work with your coaches, so it's as much of a success for them as it is for maybe the Mets that feel like this guy is something. This guy is is worth is worth rostering in our minor leagues and putting time and energy into. And so that's what I think about. You just when you draft a guy like Nick Sandlin, you think okay, maybe this guy is going to reach the major leagues, and here he is. He's pitching in a playoff game for you, and you could go through the entire, almost the entire box score and feel that way that you could just feel these these victories. Like, you get a fourth-round pick, a fifth-round pick, seventh-round. You get these guys coming up and playing any sort of role for you in the postseason. The level of, because of how much of a crapshoot it is, no, no matter how much we think we know, to have these guys contributing on any 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 level at all, it has to feel like such a massive victory. And so that's, when, when they showed the scouts up in the box, that's the one thing that came to my mind, is just how much joy and pride they must feel in the team being in this position.
1: It has to be a collective effort.
0: You know, it's, you can,
1: Vileka has received a ton of credit this season, rightfully so. He's, it's really impressive what he's done, especially since he wasn't allowed to talk to his players for 99 days right after he got the job. But, you know, there's more. It's, It's Justin Tooley who's a, Uh, does more of the hitting analytics and equips players with what the information they need to know before games. It's, you know, Victor Rodriguez and Jose Ramirez are tied at the hip. I think a lot of people maybe don't realize, like, that's Jose's guy. And he is so good at keeping Jose level-headed. You know, there's just, you can go on and on. I, I think, I think... It's important for every organization, you know, the good ones. You have to have that collaboration. You have to have success stories from every department. It's obviously more so when you have financial limitations. And I think it's just deeper in baseball than other sports. I mean, you have scouting and you have player development in the other sports. But when you have 180 minor leaguers and you're drafting 20 players a year, and you're signing international free agents. I mean, there are just so many people who play a role. Like, you know, Terry Francona could wax poetic about Andy Tracy, the AAA manager, for hours. Um, you know, you can get guys talking about how important Rouglas Odor at AA is. Or Rigo Beltron, a, a minor league pitching coach. Or Luke Carlin and working with catchers. I mean, the, the impact he's made with Bo Naylor it's the list goes on and on I, I think i think it's important to recognize that and i think you know the players too it's it's you know i, I remember mike clevenger talking about joe torres back in like when he first came to the organization cuz um, cuz torres was with texas i think he worked i think he worked with i think he worked with joe torres at some point but Talking about how when he was recovering from Tommy John and like, you know, it wasn't going very well and he wasn't sure, didn't feel like the guy he was before the surgery and just the differences in the, just helping make minor tweaks in his delivery and stuff. And like, next thing you know, he's just like destroying people at double A and triple A. Just like you never hear, you want to give all the credit to the player and the player deserves a ton of credit, but like there are always people behind the scenes making huge differences. Like, early in guys' careers. Um, and, yeah, I mean,
0: it's it's nice for them to get recognized. How about this bit of news? Just came down. Aroldis Chapman will not be on the playoff roster for the Yankees. He missed a workout and had not an acceptable excuse, according to Aaron Boone. And the surprising bit about it, or maybe not so surprising if you followed his season at all, is the n- number of Yankee fans that are excited about him not being on the playoff roster. Here we go again. Imagine telling yourself that Aroldis Chapman would not be on the roster and fans, not of the opposing team, but the team he's currently on are going to be excited about it. So yeah, apparently he's been you, a mess. you will not be seeing Aroldis He's been
1: Chapman. a mess this season, but I will say, like, you want lefties out of your bullpen to pitch against Cleveland. Cleveland has been much better against righties this season. Um, but New York's bullpen is a mess. You know, Clay Holmes is hurt. Uh, Marinaccio or whatever the guy who sounds like he was made for that team. <laughs> he's, uh, I think he's injured. And they've got, I think they got someone else too who's, who's sidelined. And that doesn't even include like Chad Green and Michael King who are out for the year. So. They're going to be leaning on their starters which not a bad thing. They've got capable starting pitchers, but uh that's you know, it's it's an interesting development.
0: Let's bring this show full circle and end where we began. The home run by Oscar Gonzalez. What was your thought the minute he connected? Did you know that it was gone?
1: <laughs> How about this? So, I've been just leaning on Starbucks relentlessly. Are we? So, started my day with a venti dark roast coffee, uh, needed a another caffeinated beverage around the eighth inning, and then got to the 15th, and I was like, you know what, <laughs> I'm going to need fuel to write whenever this game ends, so went and got another caffeinated tea and literally was walking down the steps to my seat as he hit it out. So, uh, pretty jarring. I never drank that caffeinated tea and yeah, it was it was shocking. It was uh was that the first pitch of the inning?
0: Yeah, I believe so. So, yeah, Cut it was it right just, down I, the middle.
1: I think the immediacy of it, which might be ironic to say since it was the first run in 5 hours, the but the immediacy of it just being that inning um was pretty jarring. You know, Austin Hedges was in the bathroom. You're right. And he had not finished buckling his pants. And an hour <laughs> later, standing on the field, smoking a cigar, he had still not buttoned his pants. Uh, so I don't know that second, anyone was really ready. Second pitch of the inning,
0: by the way. Second okay. pitch of the inning.
1: But I don't know that I, I wasn't ready for it. Hedges wasn't ready for it.
0: Um, were you ready for it? Absolutely not. I think at that point, everyone was just kind of in a fog and not because the Sun had been playing tricks on the entire, the entire field. The glare was, was not so great at times watching that. And as I mentioned, there were about three or four innings where I swear I don't think anybody saw that ball. Based on the swings that they were taking, And it, it was even tough. We're not looking into the Sun, and it was even tough to, to pick it up coming out of the pitcher's hand. There was the play where, where uh, Rosario jumped to try to catch a line drive and it n- ticked off his glove and went into the outfield. And I think it's because he just didn't see it properly. Maybe it, it, I, I, it, I had to guess that he probably thought it was hit harder and then it disappeared and then reappeared coming through the yeah, sun. Yeah, looked awkward. Through that field. Yeah, so I, I think he lost it there. So, yeah, everyone was kind of in a, a fog and a daze. You're just not expecting this team, because of the way they score runs, to hit this big, massive walk-off home run. And maybe we should, because when they, when this team hits home runs, they're meaningful. And maybe that's just a, a result of a team that doesn't score many runs. So when you hit a home run, odds are it's going to be worth something, because you're playing in low-run low types of games anyhow. But of course, Ramirez in Game 1, Gonzalez in Game 2. It was tough to tell whether that was going to clear the fence or not. I'm trying to watch the outfielders. I I couldn't quite read the body language of, of Siri in center field. So until that ball actually cleared the fence, Oh, 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 you sound like the dude I was sitting next to at the game who had a (laughs) one liner for every pitch. I, I couldn't tell. So when, when in the flight of the ball, did you know that it was gone? How far into the flight?
1: Well, because I, watched him I didn't even watch the ball I didn't even know where it went I knew it went bleachers but I didn't I just watched him um, that level of swag yeah (laughs) I mean if anyone is going to do that it's him right like the, the guy he's got he's got a crazy amount of power and he can hit all different sorts of pitches out of the ballpark We've seen a glimpse of it. I mean, I think the best showcase of it was that first night in Minnesota a month ago. But if anyone can do, it, I mean, I so I I was on with Rizzo and Goldhammer Friday morning for what turned into a joint "Hey Tony Grossi, Hey Zach" segment that felt like an acid trip, but. It was Browns, it was Guardians, it was Grossy asking me questions. And Anyway, someone asked, they said, tell me a player who's going to hit a home run today and I'm going to bet on it. And I said, Oscar Gonzalez, he just has that feel of like, he could just explode at any time. The guy lost, sorry. But the next day it happened. Kind of proved my point. Um, he is a guy who I would be terrified to pitch to. Because yes, he'll chase a lot, but at any moment he could just swat
0: any pitch you have over the fence. And this team needs a guy like that. Mm-hmm. It's not quite to the level of the all-or-nothing Franmil Reyes, which when if you had the Franmil that was capable of putting up twenty-five to thirty percent more offense than league average. That would be a good fit for this sort of offense. Clearly that front mill he was not here this year. Maybe he's never coming back. And perhaps that's why they they moved on from that. But this offense could absolutely benefit from someone that doesn't stray too far from the style of offense they want to play because Gonzalez can still be quick going down the bases. He's not like a slow guy that's going to go base to base. I think he kind of surprises people with his sprint speed. But to have somebody that just instills, as you're talking about, just a, just a smidgen of fear that you have to respect, that, that can benefit this offense a lot. And for him to have some success, I think, is, is absolutely critical. Because he doesn't have to get into his own head. He doesn't have to worry about being a rookie on this stage. He had the success. He had the walk-off bump. Now that dude can just calm down and, and just play.
1: Gonzalez could be fun in, in Yankee Stadium. You know, in that tiny little ballpark. And Cole, again, has been susceptible to home runs. Strikes out everybody, but this is a lineup that, aside from the last two days, doesn't doesn't usually strike out. So, I don't know. It's a very interesting matchup of contrasting styles. You know, the Yankees like to just draw walks and hit home runs. Guess what Cleveland does really well? They don't walk people. And for the most part they're pretty good at limiting home runs too so it should be fun yeah i, I, I can't believe I'm, we're here i'll tell you last time we were all at yankee stadium Miles straws trying to fight some fans and oscar mercado was getting into it remember oscar mercado <laughs> and class a yes. blew a save like that was a different
0: dimension I mean, it felt like it watching that play out. It felt like I was watching the Twilight Zone or something. <laughs> so, so, of course, that's where you end up. That's where this, the playoffs take you is to that place with Miles Straw patrolling center field. And I'll, I'll leave you with this question. As you're watching Corey Kluber walk off the mound, maybe not in the moment, but as you see the highlights of it happening, what goes through your mind? Just seems like a
1: different Kluber. It's kind of certainly some cruel irony in there. Uh, but in that situation at this point in the career, like he's not the 2016 ace pitching on short rest, you know. Um I, I feel a little bad for him that he was never able to silence all the critics who said he was not a good postseason pitcher. You know, he was That's so. That's a good.
0: crazy idea. That's a crazy yeah. idea.
1: But the, that that narrative's out there though. Um, I think it would have been cool for him because I think he deserved that sort of fate. Um but it's just weird. He's he is one of the best starting pitchers in franchise history. And this is a franchise that has had a ton of good ones. He is one of the best, one of the most decorated. So the fact that he's the one that gives up that home run. The fact that like we will be talking about that fact in twenty thirty four on Podbean Plus, (laughs) it's just it's a crazy storyline. If he goes
0: into the Hall of Fame for the franchise, which he should, for sure, that's going to be brought up. Yeah, he, he was. Do you remember when he was back here and he gave up the walk off in the playoffs? So on that level. I feel some level of, of sadness for him, the person. That you know, he has to walk off the mound dejected after he gave so much to the franchise. And it is unfortunate that that, that thought is out there that he hasn't fared well in the postseason. People forget. <laughs> Just go back and watch, go back and watch game one against the Cubs in that World Series. He was phenomenal. And you know what? If you watch Game 7, he wasn't as bad as, as I mentally kind of thought about it. He wasn't that awful. It was just kind of him not being perfect, along with Andrew Miller also getting lit up by someone who shouldn't have, have gotten to him. It all just kind of gets lumped together into what became a big failure in Game 7. He wasn't that bad. He was bad in that Yankee series, no no doubt. Mm-hmm. And Didi Gregorius, Somewhere in the back of Kluber's mind is still hitting home runs, but you can't say that that dude didn't show up in the postseason because whether or not he has had some failures here recently, he's also had just as much success in the front end of that. So you can't just dismiss that for the sake of a narrative. For sure, it's just bizarre, you know. I, it's weird. His his
1: his dad grew up in Cleveland, and was an Indians fan as a kid and you know his son pitching for his team trying to lead them to a World Series was the ultimate dream scenario for him so I know it's a little weird every time he's pitched in Cleveland or his team has faced Cleveland since and you know I'm sure he's, he's obviously rooting for his kid but again just sort of twisted irony here the fact that he's the guy and the fact that of all the pitchers who pitched, mm. he's the one in the game in that moment.
0: And all the former Cleveland players that are part of that game yeah. for Tampa Bay. I mean, it's just the lineup, the bullpen, Sean Armstrong. I'm like, what the hell? How many former Cleveland players are on coaching this team? coaching staff. The coaching staff, you're right. So in the final two minutes, we saw shirtless hedges, and we saw Zach Plesak sipping alcohol with with slider of all things slider was everywhere by the way what the, yeah what the hell yeah i don't know just be careful don't run down the the outfield wall please i saw mustard <laughs> running around out there and i just had flashbacks to slider falling off and breaking his leg was it was that the world series or the alcs i don't it was the alcs
1: it was like as carlos Bayerga. Rope to double to right center, where he was
0: that—that's yeah that's writhing
1: right. in pain. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, come to Jacob slash Progressive Field, where you might see two balls on the field, a mascot on the field. Who knows what will be out there in the outfield? Give us just some sense of of what the the clubhouse was like after the game.
1: Different. Um. So this is the first time they've clinched a postseason series at home in 25 years since the '97 DS against the Yankees and you know they blew it out two weeks ago right they were on the road they had an off day the next day it was the first time for all these kids and they went nuts this was different they went nuts in the clubhouse but there was definitely more of a sense of kind of the theme that we were just talking about organizationally top to bottom I saw scouts I saw front office people I saw all the coaches I saw people from different departments like on the business side or the communication side, um, and the mascot (laughs) and, and then, you know, there was a shorter celebration period, I think. And then it was everybody filtered out to the field with their families. So you had little kids running around, wives posting or posing for pictures and parents posing for pictures they gathered for a team photo behind the mound um it was it was very different i think it was like uh it was almost like families were sending them off okay now your be- big next assignment is in new york like good luck we're so proud of you like it was just it's like a kid going away to sleepaway camp or something um but so it was it was different it was definitely i mean i think a lot of it was relief after that game. If you lose that game, boy, to just flush that and come back the next day and try to win is, is probably easier said than done. Um so I think there was that. And then I just I think I think the first time it was like, oh, okay, they won the division. They know they're gonna have a week and a half to figure out how to prepare for the playoffs. But now it was there's more work to be done. You know, this is not the the big Blow off to wrap up the season. This is this is just a small step in the journey.
0: Yeah, you can't spend too much time celebrating it because you got to get in there. You got meetings. You got new hitters to digest and figure out how you're going to attack them. And this whole series is just set up so weird. We're so used to when the off days are in the postseason, not the case. You you pointed out even as recent as a couple of weeks ago, but you have the off day Monday, then you play Tuesday game one, Wednesday another off day. Then you play Thursday, and then another off day, and then three in a row. That's just so weird. But how does Cleveland handle this pitching staff now that they swept? They have Cal Quantrill. They could get cute and maybe bring back Bieber early and then save him for a potential Game 5, which would that put him on regular rest for a Game 5 if he started Game 1 on short rest? So... As of eleven
1: forty-five a.m. on Sunday, October 9th, Cal Quantrill will start Game One. So you could have Bieber then in Game Two on, I think even an extra day's rest. You'd go Mackenzie in Game Three, which would be Saturday at home, on um, a week's rest. You'd need then you'd have decisions to make. You could go Quantrill Game Four on regular rest, or you could go Savali. And then a game five would be a week from Monday in New York. You could go Quantrill or Savali or Bieber on short rest. No, no, no Bieber. Game two, no. Right? No, if he, yeah, if he pitches game rest.
0: two, if Bieber pitches Thursday in game to Monday. two, yeah. then you'd get Friday. Tuesday would be his regular day. Saturday, so. Sun, Sunday. So he could sh- start on short rest.
1: Yeah, so you'd have Quantrill, Savali, or a short rest beeper, But at that point, it's all hands on deck anyway, so... Right.
0: Yeah. If he's pitching, one, he's probably not going full eight innings anyway.
1: Yeah, the the one thing in Cleveland's favor here, we talked about the Yankees' bullpen being really beat up. Uh, you know, Cleveland, they can just unleash Classé and Karinchek in games one and two, because you have an off day the next day. So if you need check for 30 pitches, if you need Classe to go two innings, I mean, shit, then. That would be like, what, 14 pitches?
0: <laughs> check 30 pitches. Oh, so you've seen him pitch before. <laughs> that's, that's often how long it takes to get through one inning. There's but I think that'll
1: help. They could have a quick hook with Quantrill. You know, maybe they have a quicker hook with Bieber in case they want to bring... Uh, yeah, that's not really the way to approach it. But you don't need... Seven and two-thirds from Bieber. You don't need to trust someone who maybe you don't trust as much as check and Class A.
0: There's some flexibility. And with the off days and how they handled the end of the season too, despite playing in a 15-inning game, the bullpen is not in shambles because outside of henches, they didn't push anybody to their limit. Everybody mm-hmm. pitched one inning. No one had a really lengthy inning so everyone's pretty much set up to, they can attack it however they want, starting in game one. So it'll be interesting. And I'm looking forward, we'll, we'll have plenty of, of more coverage. I don't know what the schedule's going to look like as far as <laughs> additional shows, but just keep it locked over at Patreon because as, as we have time, we're going to pump out as many of those short shows after games as we can. And then of course, we'll have a full length Patreon show coming up later this week. I don't know what the schedule looks like. Zach doesn't know what the schedule looks like. We're going to figure it all out. So just get to patreon.com slash Godcast, and we will have you covered with at least one episode for that dollar per episode and then some more additional free bonus coverage for you at Patreon just for supporting the show, which we cannot appreciate anymore.
1: Pretty crazy. I thought we would have been, uh, we still have recapped our war draft. I know. I gotta take a victory lap on that.
0: Wait, what? Did you do the math? No. Okay. Well, we'll do that at some point. <laughs> so until next week, when we're back doing a free one, here at Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you catch your episodes, or if we see you over at patreoncom Godcast or in the Discord, which is nuts. Bye, everybody.